Turn then, if you will, to our text this morning, which comes from Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. Hear with me then the reading of God's holy word. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Thus far is the reading of God's Word. Well, brothers and sisters, since it has been two weeks now since I've been with you, I thought that it might be nice to just briefly go back over what Paul said in verses 12 to 16 so as to refresh in our minds in case any of you have forgotten, which I'm sure is not the case. So just a little refresher. But it's important because what Paul's about to say in verse 17 really piggybacks off of what he has just said in verses 12 to 16. And so recall in verse 12, Paul tells the saints, I have not reached perfection in case any of you thought that I have. And then he goes on to describe to them the Christian experience, which was fully engulfed, it was fully enveloped in pressing on and continuing to press forward in the Christian life towards perfection. And then the Apostle goes on to describe what it means to press on in verse 13. And he uses this racing metaphor of a sprinter who's running and who's straining every muscle, exerting all energy to cross that finish line, not looking back. And Paul says, like the sprinter who runs to the finish line, when he crosses that line, what does he receive? He receives a prize. And Paul says likewise, I run and I too will receive that prize. And Paul calls that prize the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And we said that this occurs on that day. That day being the day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And then Paul ends in verse 15 and 16 by exhorting the saints to think in this same way. Be of like mind in that we are to exert every droplet of energy we have to running this race. And not only running this race, but finishing the race. Not getting distracted. Not being bumped off course. And why is that? Because Paul says, this is how the mature Christian is to think. And so then, this leads us into our text this morning in verse 17. As Paul now tells the saints, brothers and sisters, Imitate me. Imitate me. Yet, what's interesting is that Paul does not 
tell them this as one who has authority over them so much, but rather he tells them this as a brother. See, Paul could have said, I, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, tell you, imitate me, obey these commands. But he doesn't do that. Although he's done this elsewhere. When the people he's writing to and the occasion he's writing about calls for it. Remember his epistle to the, to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, Paul begins his opening greeting referencing his apostleship. And he does so because what's going on in the church there? They're having divisions and quarrels and bickering and so it calls for that. But here, Paul does not do that for that is not what's going on with the saints in Philippi. And so, rather he calls them to imitation gently and softly and tenderly by calling them brothers. You see, it's one thing to have a parent or a teacher, someone with, with, someone with authority over you, saying, follow after my example. But isn't it different when a brother or sister says the same thing? Many of you who have grown up with siblings probably know exactly what I mean. A parent can say the same thing to you, but the message is received completely differently. It's received completely differently. We can think to ourselves, oh, they just want control over us. They just want to tell us what to do. But if one, if a brother or a sister, one that we are close to and we look up to, tell us that very same thing, we receive that message much easier, much differently. And so here Paul is saying to them, imitate me, brothers and sisters. But he's not saying it to say, to pat himself on the back and to put himself up on a pedestal. But rather, he's saying it as we've just seen in our recap of verses 12 through 16. He's saying it because he's engaged in the very same race that they are running. He knows what they're experiencing. He knows what they're feeling. He knows what they're thinking. And he wants them to know this. He wants them to receive the message as, it, as if it was from a brother. When our parents said something to us, we usually said to ourselves, they're too old. Their generation doesn't understand what our generation's going through. They don't walk in our shoes. And so, as our parents told us something, we usually let it go in one ear and out the other. But when our brother or sister said it to us, we oftentimes took it very seriously, didn't we? Because we took it as coming from someone who knew what it was to be like us. To experience the same persecutions. To experience the same pressures and the same troubles on a daily basis, just like we did. And such was the case with the Apostle Paul. And so, why does Paul feel it necessary to address the saints in such this manner? It was because he was stirred to such love for the saints, for the brethren, that he felt it necessary for their very spiritual livelihood that they hear this message and they hear it in this manner. And that message was this. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Here we have brother saying to brothers and to sisters, be careful whom you imitate. Many of us as teens and young adults heard this same message from our siblings. 
He said, don't hang out with those people. Don't act like those people. They're bad news. They're going to get you in trouble. They care nothing about you. Rather, stay, stay with me and my friends. We'll look after you. We'll take care of you. And didn't we need those warnings? Because to follow after that group, thinking they were the cool kids, would have eventually, down the line, been disastrous. And the same thing is true as Christians today, isn't it? We often need that reminder. Imitate those who walk worthy of the calling. Paul is saying, imitate me. Imitate Timothy. Imitate Epaphroditus. These are the people you are to watch. These are the people you are to look up to and to imitate and to learn from. Those who hold on to pure doctrine and practice. And yet, many Christians today, don't they, still look at and set their eyes upon and look upon those who would seem to be the cool ones. Why do you think so many uh, people go to these mega churches where the pastor usually doesn't even look like a pastor? He's got the the V-neck shirt and the skinny jeans. And uh, he just wants to be seen as the normal guy, just not even preaching to you, just casually talking as he's walking around the stage. Right? He just wants to tell you about, about Jesus. Right? They're seen as a cool preacher. They want to look and sound like us. They make us feel good about ourselves. And so people want to begin to mimic them, how they talk, how they act. And don't we see that in the, in the trend in today's ministers? They want to recreate this cool atmosphere. They want to be, they want to be real liked and just, just be like the rest of the church, right? No different. They want to look like you, talk like you, act like you. But in their preaching, there's no real heavy theological stuff. Maybe a little practical application. But they're leading congregations down wrong paths. Most of their teaching is but moralism. Or they leave out the law. Yet, without the law, where, where does the knowledge of sin come from? Right? And this needs to be pointed out because it can have devastating consequences. And this is the very reason Paul points this out to the saints. In verse 18, he says this, For many of whom I have often told you with and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Those who lead you away from pure doctrine and from pure practice walk as enemies of the cross. And here we see in Paul this brotherly love as he's pouring out his heart to the saints as he's tearing up as he's writing this. Many of us may have had this experience with our own siblings. Many conversations about important things Many heavy discussions. But then every once in a while, there's that one real heavy discussion in which your siblings' eyes begin to well up. And maybe tears fall down the cheeks and off the chin. And you say to yourself, they're really serious about this one. Right? They don't want to make us, they don't want us to make a decision that is going to cause us to ruin our life. And they do it because they love us. They want our good. They don't want to see us in pain and suffering and agony because of some poor life decision. And can't you almost visualize Paul here as he's penning this letter? The tears just running down his face, off his chin, 
and hitting the letter as he's writing it. And isn't this a picture? Doesn't this show to us the level of depth and concern and love that Paul has for the saints? Because to imitate these false teachers isn't to fail out of school or maybe to spend a night in jail or to lose a job. Things maybe our siblings cautioned us against. But no, what Paul is cautioning these saints against is about following after these false teachers means you are an enemy of the cross of Christ. It doesn't have just temporal ramifications, but eternal ones. And so Paul doesn't want them to be unaware. He doesn't want them to be deceived by these false teachers, feigned godliness and earthly wisdom. And isn't it ministers such as these that people should be flocking to to listen to? Not ones who tell you what you want to hear in order that they may amass a large following, but rather those who have sincere love and genuine concern for you and so they tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. And so then in the remaining verses, Paul tells the saints what's the difference between those who mind the things of earth and those who mind the things of heaven. For those who belong to this world, mind the things of this world. Earthly things are what they pay attention to. Earthly things are what they busy themselves with. But the Christian, for the Christian, although our body right now is confined to this earth, our heart and our mind are not. And they can ascend up high. For we are in union with Christ and in communion with the triune God of Scripture. And so for our remaining time, what we're going to look at is what does it mean to mine the things of earth? And what does it mean to mine the things of heaven? Get out of full disclosure, we're only going to get to the first point today. So if you will, please look at verse 19 with me. As Paul says, that for these enemies of the cross, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. You want to know the difference, brothers and sisters, between the godly and the ungodly? Look at where their favor lies. Look at where their favor lies. As Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. You see, the ungodly think about and they desire within their very souls wicked things and they cannot help but at some point in time to exercise those desires. All right? This is what Christ Himself says in Matthew chapter 7 when He says, a bad tree bears bad fruit. Right? As He's warning against the false prophets, He says what? You will know them by their fruit. And this is the exact same thing Paul is telling the saints. These false teachers among you, Paul says, they don't serve the one true God. They don't serve the one true God. Rather, their God is their belly. Their God is themselves. They're gluttonous. They're self-indulgent. And they lack self-control. He's saying, don't follow them. They're wolves in in sheep's clothing. They're blind guides. And this is because they don't have the Spirit of Christ. For those who have the Spirit of Christ do not glory in their shame, do they? 
Now, that doesn't mean that we don't sin. For we all sin. Daily. And often probably. But when we sin, we, we are to hate our sin. And we are to be at war with our sin daily. Struggling against it. Mortifying the deeds of the flesh. We are to be convicted by our sin. And our sin ought to draw us to our knees and in confession to God. But this world, this world calls good what God calls evil. And they love to glory in what ought to be most shameful. Think about, for example, how this world promotes such things as abortion. Right? The taking of an unborn life. Let's call it what it is. Murder. Extinguishing the very image of God in that child. Having no authority to do so. And yet this world, they joke. They laugh about it. Yet all the while, violating the Sixth Commandment, thou shalt not murder. They think that they're autonomous. Subject to no one. And so they can do with their bodies whatever they please. Or think about promiscuity. It used to be a shameful thing to have children out of wedlock, wasn't it? Yet now, today, it seems like you meet someone, you move in, you have kids, and if that all works out, then maybe we'll get married. But this isn't what Paul taught, was it? In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2, he says, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And so these types of relationships outside of the marriage bed is sinful and immoral. And yet, so often, we want to talk about sexual immorality only in regards to homosexuality. And yes, brothers and sisters, that is sin. Certainly it is. For God has established marriage between one man and one woman. For man to leave mother and father and to hold fast to one wife. But you know what happens though? And sometimes we focus so much on that, we forget to point out the sin of young men and young women and their sexual immorality. Perhaps that was the sin of some of us when we were younger. Perhaps it was the sin of some of our children or maybe our grandchildren. And do we just overlook it and dismiss it? Like, ah, that's just young adults being young adults? Well, no, brothers and sisters. We must point that out too as sin. For all sinners must be called forth unto repentance. Because this world glories in every sort of sexual sin, doesn't it? And we, as the people of God, must abhor such things. Such things should not be named amongst us. But nowadays, isn't it sad that even in schools, they pass out contraception like it's bubblegum, don't they? It's about having fun with whomever you want before you get married. Just be safe about it. This world loves to hold forth and esteem those things which ought to be most shameful. Yet Paul says, this is wickedness. And such people who engage in this behavior, who glory in their shame, whose God is their belly, are enemies of the cross. Yet I ask, how many people sit in pews today in churches throughout the world 
and yet engage in this behavior and promote such things. And they say, what are you talking about, brother? I'm not an enemy of the cross. I'm a friend. I'm a friend. Yet not understanding that they're self-indulgence and their desired friendship with the world and the things of this world is the very antithesis of the cross of Christ. The cross says self-denial. The cross says not the will of man or of this world, but the will of the Father. It is enemies of the cross who love this world, but it is friends of the cross who love not this world or the things in it. And isn't this what John teaches us in his first epistle? In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, John says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. That which the world esteems as good, brothers and sisters, no, it does not come from the Father. This world wants to satisfy its sinful desires, both in mind and in body. Yet if this describes you, know that the love of the Father is not in you. Because those who love the Father would gladly and readily give up all things and suffer reproach for the sake of the Father. They are eager to reject the things of this world and the ever-changing moral standard of the world and are more than willing to deny themselves for the sake of Christ. And yet this world knows not the notion of self-denial, does it? And what's sad is that many Christians don't even know this notion of self-denial, do they? They say, what? The Christian life is a life of self-denial? I thought the Christian life was about making me happy. About me getting everything I wanted. About being healthy and wealthy. But what does Christ say? In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. And if there is anything that we have learned about the Apostle Paul in this here epistle... It is that Paul lived a life of self-denial. He suffered. He was in prison, losing every earthly freedom and enjoyment because he preached the name of Christ. And he was unwilling to relent even in the face of death. I would imagine that if Paul were alive today and preaching, he would have some small, obscure ministry somewhere. Because what people want to hear today is not what Paul was preaching. He was preaching the necessity of suffering. He was preaching losing all to gain Christ. He wasn't preaching becoming rich. He wasn't preaching being in perfect health. He wasn't preaching enjoying every earthly thing you want. And then what was Paul's end even? Paul's end was death. He died at the hands of Nero. I guess there were many pastors and congregations today who would have to look at Paul and say, ah, Paul must just not have had enough faith. He must not have had enough faith. Yet you and I know this is not the case, is it, brothers and sisters? Paul was rich in faith. And in Paul's weakness, God worked mightily within him. And we've seen that with 
all the droves and droves of people who have came to saving faith under the proclamation of the Gospel by the Apostle Paul. And yet, not everyone who Paul describes makes their sin so obvious, do they? Not everyone is so outlandish. Not everyone is so overt. Not, so, not everyone is so unapologetic about their sin. And we might call those people enemies of the cross in secret. They're the ones who show up to church on Sunday, who you would think are fine Christian men and women, yet are anything but in the privacy of their own homes or when they hang around their non-Christian friends. Yet guess what? Their end is the same end as those who do not hide their sin. And Paul says that end is destruction. They are those who Christ says in Matthew chapter 7, 22-23, that on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, we must know that nothing that we do is hid from omniscient God. There is nothing done or said in private that will not be brought to light. We will all have to give an account for every idle word spoken. Yet, brothers and sisters, we have a comfort. And that comfort, Paul will later say, is that we are citizens of heaven. That by grace and through faith, our sins are forgiven by the shed blood of Christ. And now, we are those who have the Spirit of Christ within, within inside each one of us, who both wills within us to work and to will after the good pleasure of God. What a comfort that is to us, isn't it? It should be. And so it is here that we can look back quickly to Romans 8.5, seeing once more this distinction between the godly and the wicked. Remember, Paul said, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit, set their minds on the Spirit. And so we, being those who have the Spirit, are those who love not the world and love not the things of the world, but rather we love the things of God. And it is these things that we set our hearts and our minds upon. Unlike those who Paul describes, whose minds are set on earthly things. You see, the mind set on earthly things cannot please God. It cannot do that which is righteous and good and holy because the tree is bad. If the tree is bad, everything it produces will be bad. This is why they are those who glory in their shame and whose God is their belly. Because everything that they think and do proceeds forth out of who they are. They are imposters. They are imposters to the faith. Perhaps they have knowledge of Christ. Perhaps they have knowledge of the Gospel. But they have never experienced their power. And so, with our remaining time, we want to look at some of the ways in which these enemies of the cross and some ways in which these imposters mind earthly things. And so in my study, as I began to prepare for this text, 
I looked at it and learned much from Jeremiah Burroughs in his treatise on earthly mindedness. I'm sure many of you are familiar with that book, but I would commend it to you to look at, to look over it in your spare time if you have it, if you can. For we often need reminders to take our minds and our eyes off of that which is earthly and to set them upon that which is heavenly, because we are heavenly. And so now we'll we'll look at how earthly mindedness is expressed. And so an earthly minded person is one who looks at the things of this world as being the chief good. Right? They put the greatest value on things that are earthly. And we see this in this world's pursuit of riches, don't we? This world esteems the biggest homes and the fanciest cars and the best clothing. They only want the best of the best. Now, not ha- now having these things in and of themselves is not wrong. But it is when we set our minds and fixate them upon gaining these things, when we pursue them at all in any cost, when we are not happy unless we have them, then, and then, oh, is it wrong? And then, is it sinful? Yet this happens because their minds are stuck on earth. They themselves are stuck on earth. Their hearts are stuck on earth. Yet this was not the mind of Christ and the apostles. It was Christ who said in Matthew 8, verse 20, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. And it was Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 11 who said, To the present hour we hunger and we thirst. We're poorly dressed and are buffeted and homeless. It was Peter who said to the lame beggar in Acts chapter 3, verse 6, I have no gold or silver, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. In today's world, wouldn't Jesus and the apostles be looked at as failures, I guess? Yet their concern was not the accumulation of the perishable, but rather of the imperishable. Their riches were spiritual and heavenly. And isn't this what we are called to hunger and thirst after, brothers and sisters? Are we not called to seek first the kingdom and trust that God will provide all that we need, that God will provide us our daily bread, that He will provide us our food and our shelter? These aren't, but these are the things we are to set our mind upon, not earthly things. You see, but earthly minded people do so because that is where their heart lies. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. You see, the earthly minded person goes after those things which are not sinful in and of themselves in a sinful manner. They go after them in a sinful manner because they busy themselves with acquiring earthly goods at the expense of their own souls. Right? Instead of showing up to church on Sunday, they go into work. Instead of family worship, dad can't spare 10, 15, 20 minutes because he's so consumed with work. And when he comes home, he plops down on the couch and is fixated on the TV and can't pull himself away from it. 
But how sad that is. What a sad life that is. Busying yourself your whole life in things that have no spiritual value. And not only are then are you being a detriment to yourself, but you're being a detriment to those you say you love, your wife and your children. And so as Christians, we must learn, brothers and sisters, to guard our hearts from such sin. This means we are to be watchful of our hearts. We are to take account of what, our, of what is in our hearts. We are to, to take inventory of what it is we delight and find joy in. What we spend our time doing. We are to ask ourselves, what is sweet to my soul? Is it the things of the earth? Or is it quiet time of prayer? Is it reading God's Word? Is it teaching my children the truth of Christ? Because what you think about, what you spend your time doing, reveals to you where your heart lies. With Christ or with the world. And perhaps you say to yourself, well, brother, I don't skip church for work, so I guess this has nothing to do with me. Well, I would ask you this then. Do you engage in spiritual things in an earthly manner? Because then it still has much to do with you. Now, Jeremiah Burroughs says this, I grant that the best of saints have sometimes earthliness in spiritual things. But I speak of predominance, where the frame of the heart is but earthly in spiritual performances. Does this apply to you? Does this apply to you? Do you grow weary by doing spiritual things? Yet, all of a sudden, you're energized when you go into work or when you're hanging out with friends or watching sports on Sunday? Do you drag your feet and come into church? Do you only want a church that has one service on Sunday and that's it? So you can come and check the box and punch the ticket and spend the rest of the Lord's Day doing what you desire? I'll tell you this. This is the mind of the earthly person. This is the mind of the earthly-minded person. For the heavenly person, the godly person, delights in the Sabbath. It is their joy to come and worship their King. It is their joy and delight to be in fellowship with the saints. And guess what? They want to do it often. They want to have more than one service on Sunday. Knowing that it is on this day, the Lord's Day, it is this day in which the Word is preached and which the uh, sacraments are administered. It is this day that we primarily here are spiritually fed and nourished on the Lord's Day as the gathering of God's people in the household of God. This is where primarily we are fed and we are nourished. And so do you delight and do you desire to be here for that? Do you anticipate, do you look forward to the arrival of the Lord's Day? If your heart is in heaven, if you are a saint of Christ, you ought to. You ought to. And next week we'll look at what it means to be a citizen of heaven. But for the earthly-minded person, they mind the things of heaven having no hope. They look only to what's here on earth, thinking that this is all that's left for them. But boy, are they in for a rude awakening. Because Paul tells us the earthly-minded person's end is destruction. And destruction doesn't mean annihilation. 
Destruction means eternal and everlasting punishment. This is what we learn from the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. When we're told the rich man dies and is buried, he's in Hades and he's suffering torment. This is what Jesus teaches about hell in Mark chapter 9, verse 48, where he says, The worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And so those of you who are here, maybe those of you who might listen at a later time, if you hear these things and you say, hey, this describes me. Look to the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 13, verse 3. Now I tell you, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. With tears in our eyes, brothers and sisters, we ought to proclaim the gospel to all of those who are perishing. For it's a terrible thing for sinners to fall into the hands of an angry God, isn't it? Yet, the Father has made a way to eternal felicity, hasn't hasn't He? Through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so I say, turn to Christ. Place all your confidence in Christ and He alone. Lay hold to His merits by faith and you will have the forgiveness of sins. And then God, the Giver of life, the One who has called forth all things into existence out of naught, will breathe life into you you who were once dead. Making you a new creature in Christ. For it is only those whose life is hidden with Christ who are enabled to seek and set their things upon that which is heavenly. As we have been given then new hearts and new desires in Christ causing us to desire to forsake all that this world has to offer. Willing to give it all up in order that we might gain Christ. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Father, we thank You that You have given to Your people a spirit that desires and longs and craves and thirsts and hungers after You. Yet, Father, we pray that You would strengthen those desires within us. For Lord, we are not always those who long and, and, and thirst and hunger after You. So often, we are those who, like this world, set our minds upon that which is earthly. We forget that we are children of heaven and we are called to be citizens of heaven here on earth and to seek and to set those things which are heavenly and above, those hidden treasures found in Christ Jesus. And so, Father, we ask You, that You would grant us, by the aid of the Spirit, a more ardent desire to seek, our, to seek out these things, to reject and deny that which is earthly, and to long after, to strive after, that which pleases our Heavenly Father. Right? To look upon men such as Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus and imitate them and to learn from them that You would give us a spirit of discernment to know who it is we ought not to follow after, those who would lead us down wrong paths, those who do not hold firm in the Gospel, those who do not hold firm to the pure doctrine and sound practice. And so, Father, we pray that You would continue to bless us and to grow us in the image of Your Son, Jesus Christ, Lord, that we would be those who hunger and thirst after 
teaching and through uh, the hearing of your word, desire to come before you each Lord's Day, longing to spend the whole day in worship of you, O Lord, that that is where our heart might be, that we might hear, have that foretaste of what heaven is like as we gather as a body before you in your worship, singing you praises and preaching your word. And so, Father, we ask all of this in your Son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.